the world, if left to its own devices, doesn't sort itself out. It is one of ever-increasing disarray, and I think that's important because you can't just park it and expect when you return to it, it's going to be in better shape than you uh, left it. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Richard Haas is president of the Council on Foreign Relations. He wrote the book, A World in Disarray, American Foreign Policy and the Crisis of the Old Order. Haas says the world is increasingly defined by disorder. There's chaos in the Middle East, Europe is unstable, and Asia is threatened by the rise of China and a reckless North Korea. He argues the world is in need of an updated global operating system. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly podcast that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Haas says we're running on an outdated system. The guidelines and institutions that have led the world since World War II are antiquated. How can world order be upheld with modern threats like terrorism, cyber power, the spread of nuclear weapons, and climate change? Haas, who worked for President George H.W. Bush and Colin Powell, also explains how the Trump administration should act towards China and Russia. And he gives advice on what the country should do to address its dysfunctional politics and mounting debt. His conversation with Aspen Institute President Walter Isaacson is part of the Alma and Joseph Gildenhorn book series at the Aspen Institute. Here's Isaacson. This book reminded me a little bit of uh, a concept in physics, which is called entropy which is that the world and the universe and the cosmos gets more and more uh, disordered as time goes on. You can stir cream in the coffee, but you can't unstir the cream or put the perfume molecules back into the bottle. This entropy in foreign policy, in your, uh, started probably uh, at the Treaty of Versailles or something, but uh, let's start with the end of the Cold War because there was an ordering factor by the Cold War. Sure. Uh, first of all, thank you. And uh, it's a treat to be here with Walter and with you all today. The, uh, yeah, I think entropy is the natural order of things, the natural state of things. And it's important then to keep that in mind because unlike what we all learned in um, Economics 101 where you had the invisible hand and somehow you had the interactions that led to order, under Adam Smith's thinking, the world, if left to its own devices, doesn't sort itself out. And that it is one of ever-increasing disarray. And I think that's important, because you can't just park it and expect when you return to it, it's going to be in better shape than you left, you, you, uh, left it. Cold War was a unique period of international relations, or as I like to say in Washington, very unique uh, position, period of uh, international uh, relations in that you had two points so dominant. And it was highly structured. There, there were all sorts of rules of the road, in part because of, uh, in large, no small part because of nuclear weapons. I actually think it introduced a significant degree of caution, because each side was very worried about going so far that the other side would feel they had to respond in ways that nuclear weapons could be brought into the, into the equation. So you had a certain, you had both mostly unwritten rules of the road. And you saw it, for example, played out in the Middle East in the early 70s with the United States and the, and the Soviet Union. 
uh, in some ways you saw it played out with the Korean War. In many cases, it was, it was okay to defend your proxies or your allies and restore status quo antes, but you couldn't necessarily go and create new status quo where the other side would lose completely. Mm -hmm. And I think that became, uh, anyhow, at the end of the Cold War, you lost a lot of that discipline. Indeed, it's interesting that the first geopolitical crisis of the post-Cold War was the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. Something that I believe, and I was at the White House at the time with 41, I believe would not have happened had the Cold War still been going on. I, I simply don't think the Soviets would have permitted someone like Saddam, who was very much in their orbit, to have uh, done. But I think with the end of the Cold War is just part of it. I think a lot of these things, that other things that grew up to add to the disarray were, were also happening simultaneously. You had everything from the rise of certain countries like China. Uh, you had the, the phenomenon of globalization really gained tremendous momentum, the, both the, the speed and the, the volume of it. And the gap between the reality of globalization and the willingness and ability of governments to, to structure it or management began to, to grow and grow. You had a phenomenon, again, consistent with entropy, where more and more elements or agents or players, whatever inelegant word you want to use out there, actors, had more and more capacity. So as the Cold War ended, the duopoly with it ended, and more and more centers of capacity and centers of decision-making. Including non-state. Including non-state. So all of these things were happening and were gaining momentum in the first, say, decade of the, which is not that long ago, but in, you know, of the, of the post-Cold War period. And in some ways, 9-11, which is an example of a non-state actor with, with means, was an example of it, and also a manifestation of globalization, but it's dark side. So these things were happening in the first 10, 15 years of the post-Cold War But period. when you were in the White House with uh, George H.W. Bush in the first Gulf War, uh, he talked about a new world order, a phrase that sounds infelicitous now, yes. but was actually a good concept. What was it? What happened to it? Yeah, it was cooked up by the president and Brent Scowcroft one day. And Saint would, Brent here. Sorry? Saint Brent. Saint here. Brent. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. One, of, one of the people on the planet I am closest to and most fortunate to have been associated with. Uh, I wasn't wild about the phrase and the for what it's worth. I thought it was awfully opt optimistic. Uh, and the president, though, talked about it in that speech before Congress. And it was a kind of a little bit of the end of international relations as we knew it uh, and all that. But it was but it, a high minded idea. Look back on 25 years now, it seems not so much quaint, but almost unimaginable given what's going on. And to me, one of the things that led me to write this book was how did we go from there to here in what's a historical blink? How do, how do we travel that degree of yardage in 25 years? It is a, it's, it's a, it's a pace of deterioration, which I think is uh, quite marked. But, but they looked at what, what led to it was not just the end of the Cold War, but the success we had in fashioning this coalition to deal with the, with the Iraqi aggression. And you remember you had, what, more than a dozen UN resolutions, uh, tremendous support from all across the world, each different countries in different ways uh, to deal with it. What I thought, what, I, what worried me a little bit about trying to generalize though, because it dealt with the most basic issue in international relations, which was sovereignty. And I basically said that the fact that the world has come together around this one principle as well, 
but this might be the only principle they're prepared to come together around, mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, the inviolability of borders. And I, I wasn't confident that you could generalize uh, from, from what happened uh, in, in response to, uh, to Saddam more broadly uh, about the, the, the course of, of history. You know, uh, the uh, beginning of the Cold War, certain institutions were created that were supposed to handle that order. From the United Nations, the World Bank, to the Bretton Woods things, to Voice for, I mean, Radio sure. for Europe, whatever it may have been, uh, Marshall Plan. Uh, when the New World Order was created, we didn't uh, create new institutions, and we kept trying to use the old ones. Yeah, that was part of the problem. I said that if we are going to talk about it, then we really have to flesh it out, <clears throat> and we then have to try to implement it. So, and you know, quickly, you know, what happened was the, more the opposite, because the next big crisis to really come along in the world was the, was the Balkans, mm -hmm. and that showed that again there wasn't yet consensus. And we obviously had the falling out with, with Russia over that, but there was no consensus about what was the right of, uh, who, could de who could determine whether they deserved a separate state. When the UN wouldn't authorize an intervention, the United States and the Europeans did an end run. We basically went forum shopping and we, we took it to NATO. And <clears throat> what it suggested to me, no, this, this just shows how far we, we, have, we, have, to, uh, we have to go. We ju we ju we're just not there. You know, uh, one reason for the uh, disarray or entropy has been that people like me and you, if I may put myself in the category, have believed in the globalization model. We believe trade was good and had some consequences, but overall really good. That immigration was good. That uh, technology was good. And I think we got a bit out of touch about the, with the people for whom it was not so good. Has the globalization consensus broken down? Is that our fault? I think, we're, I think uh, at the risk of being self-something or other, I think you and I are right. Trade is basically good. Uh, technology is more, it's neither good nor bad or it's both. I think technology codes, but, but globalization simply to me are reality. Uh, what I think, where I think we went wrong is in not explaining it enough, not making the case. I think we assumed way too much. And one of the things we all should stop doing is assuming anything. There are no givens anymore in the, uh, and that's what I think the American and European political debates are showing, is you can't assume just about anything uh, anymore. I also believe we did not do enough to make sure that those who were struggling could do better. And, I, and there's a lot of people uh, in this country who haven't done well, ironically not because so much of globalization or trade. I think it's really to do with innovation and job disappearance, but it's, at some point it doesn't matter. They're being scapegoated. Right. Uh, but the reality is we've got when to help. the Maytag help. plant disappears from Newton, Iowa, it's easier to blame right. Mexico than you to blame. You blame Mexico or China. Yeah. You don't blame the fact that simply we can now do these things. I mean, look at Amazon. They're, you know, probably since this conversation began, they've introduced 10 more robots. Right. Uh, so the, the pace of innovation. Well, let me real quickly, I'm sorry to keep it over there. Do you actually think, and I don't know the answer here, but I'm a little bit more skeptical than you, that technology decreases rather than decreases the number of jobs in a society? Well, I think it does two things. I think it certainly decreases existing jobs. I think it may increase certain jobs, but there's a lag. It's not instantaneous. And second of all, the educational and training requirements for the jobs that may come on stream are, far, are different and often greater, more demanding than the jobs which have disappeared. So 
in order to keep up with that, societies can't simply stand around. They have to anticipate it, and whether it's government doing things or at the federal level or local level or individual corporations doing things, what have you, individuals doing things for themselves, there has to, we, we need to get rid of this idea of education as a front-loaded thing in our lives, it's something you do when you're teens or 20s, and then you basically, it's like filling up your car with a tank of gas, and it, it gets you through the next 50 miles, uh-uh. We now have to top off our intellectual tank 10, 15 times as we drive down the highway. Well, we're not geared for that. We're not geared for that as individuals. We're not geared for that as societies and economies. But unless we get better at it, the, we are going to have more and more people who are not participating fully in the society. And that is just going to breed populism uh, and breed social division. And I think, I think we're seeing it here. We're seeing it in Europe. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On the show today, President of the Council on Foreign Relations, Richard Haas, and Aspen Institute CEO, Walter Isaacson. Haas is the author or editor of 12 books on foreign policy and international relations. His latest is A World in Disarray. This episode features a conversation about the book. It was held on February 21st, 2017. Here's Walter Isaacson. And the third thing that really breeds the populism, nationalism, revolt that's caused some of this entropy is a resistance to immigration. Sure. Um, and it's you know, a global phenomenon. I mean, we saw the riots in Sweden last Friday or whatever. Oh. Um, <laughs> uh, but Understandable. Yeah. yeah uh, <laughs> did we actually, I mean, is there another side to it? Did we actually go too far with immigration so that people felt that they were losing, whether it was Newcastle, England, or Newton, Iowa, they were losing their tribe and society. In this country, no. I actually think we didn't go far enough with immigration. I mean, look, one of your most celebrated books was about one of this country's greatest immigrants, Steve Jobs. I thought you were going to say Henry Kissinger. Oh, yeah. <laughs> one of your other most celebrated books. Uh, uh, Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein. All three. Uh, so depression. Yeah. There you go. Well, Steve's dad, yeah. But Steve's dad, yeah. But the, the, my point simply, uh, and I actually think too much of our immigration system is not strategic enough. I would actually do more to identify almost the way that the Canadians and New Zealanders and Australians have done, people who bring to the country certain skill sets. But no, I think immigration in this country has been a great boon for, for economic uh, growth. I think where the Germans went wrong was in... Uh, accepting immigration too much too quickly. I think there was a sense of being overwhelmed. It, was, it would have been the equivalent of the United States of accepting somewhere between 30 and 35,000 people a day. That's what Germany was doing at the peak of the refugee crisis. That's, you can't integrate. You can't, you can't vet, integrate anything on that uh, scale. So I think it was well-intentioned but was uh, counterproductive. Uh, but no, I, I think, but I, I do think immigration is is again being scapegoated uh, for a lot of uh, for a lot of pro problems in, in, in our size. But it it clearly was more than any other issue the driver of the Brexit vote, even though there wasn't a significant increase in, in British uh, immigration, and we'll see what effect it has on the French vote coming up the end of April and then again in May. So to build on that, people always talk about what happened in this country. You know, Trump the whole phenomenon, 
And I keep saying, well, we have more data points than just the U.S. This is happening sure. from Budapest to Paris to Newcastle, as I said. To what extent is this a global phenomenon? Well, it is to some extent a global. I think it is for, for developed societies. Europe, is, its economic growth has been stagnating at levels <clears throat> below our own, which I think is important to keep in mind. And so against that backdrop, it's not, it's not surprising. Again, you have populism or or nationalism. What I think, though, counts more for here, I'll say two things. It counts in Europe significantly, because I actually think it's put at risk one of the most creative pieces of statecraft in the modern era, which is the launch of modern Europe. The EU. The the European Union The Cola Steel community to the community to the EU. So I think that is now at risk in ways I never thought I would see in in my lifetime. And it it matters here simply because the U.S. has this, we have had this outsized role in the world. Kind of gets back to where we began the conversation. The world doesn't organize itself. The United States can't organize it by itself. Unilateral is not a viable option. But U.S. leadership and full involvement is uh, essential. And so that's why what happens here worries me. And it's not simply the rejection of free trade, which I think is unfortunate. But when you go back, say, to the inaugural speech of Donald Trump, and it's not just the American firstism, but it was this, this it almost went back to, without saying this, the old guns and butter debate and was suggesting that what we were spending on guns was uh, responsible for our domestic flaws. And what's wrong with that is several things. One is what we're spending on guns, if you add it all up, as significant as those numbers are, as a percentage of GDP, you're still way down from where they were during the peak of the Cold War. And we were able then to do just fine economically, spending at far higher rates of uh, GDP. Second of all, you can blame the Iraq War for just about anything, you, you know, for a lot of things. You can't blame it, for example, you, you can't blame though, the Iraq war for the 2007-8 financial crisis. You can't blame it for the fact that LaGuardia Airport is the way it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't, so you can go around our domestic shortcomings. I don't believe you can attribute it to what we're doing in the world. Plus, I think, I look at what, we're doing, what we've done in the world over the last 70 years, and I go, not bad. Mm-hmm. Kept the peace in Europe for the most part. Compare that to the first half of the 20th century. What a remarkable uh, turnabout. Kept the peace in Asia extraordinarily well amidst all the dynamism. The places we really got in trouble in foreign policy were what? Going north of the 38th parallel in Korea, Vietnam, and Iraq. None of those were to fulfill narrow alliance commitments. All of those were basically, I think, American overreach in action. So I don't believe we can, again, blame the costliest parts of American foreign policy on fulfilling alliance obligations. It was in pursuit of some other uh, goals. So I actually think what we've done in the world has been quite a, I think our return on investment has been extraordinarily good. But the one place where it hasn't is not just Iraq, but the entire Middle East project, from Syria to whatever. Where did we go wrong? How much time do we have here? Look, uh, I think you you asked me at the beginning about the end of the Cold War. Well, the two other things that most explain why we are where we are is some of that. And it's both uh, overreach and underreach. And I think places like uh, the Iraq War, first and foremost, to try to transform the DNA of another society was tremendous uh, overreach. We didn't need to do it. We should not have done it. I believe going into Libya was not justified by the facts on the ground whatsoever. Uh, so I think there is examples of where we tried to remake a part of the world that I just don't think was the raw material. You know, the civil society hadn't gotten to certain points. I think we were taking a, a certain Western preference and imposing it there, and it just 
wasn't going to happen. And then I think we also underreached, uh, going into Libya, which again I oppose, but then not following it up at all. Uh, not following up what we did in Iraq initially. We had to then do the surge later on. Uh, so this combination of acts of commission and omission got the United States into tremendous trouble in the uh, Middle East. And what we need to do now is right-size our policy. And I would say it, it doesn't try to transform. You know, our goal can't be that we, we have 400 million people reading the, the Federalist Papers in Arabic translation. That would be sweet, but uh, not going not gonna to happen. We don't want to wash our hands of it. So, so what, are the in between, what are some things we can do in between? Well, we can, obviously we can go after uh, ISIS. We can, we can keep Iran uh, complying with the uh, nuclear uh, agreement. And we better think about a follow-on agreement, by the way, because important aspects of this expire in less than a decade. This does not solve the problem. It just parks the problem. So let me just make that as an, uh, an, uh, an aside. We need to think about how we push back against Iran's bid for regional primacy. So there are things we can and should do around the Middle East, but they don't involve remaking the Middle East. Um, Russia, um, which will take us up to Trump, I guess, but in some ways we have a confluence of interest with some things with Russia, and yet, I mean, in terms of, say, fighting ISIS and fighting terrorism, no. and yet that would put us on the side of allowing Assad to stay. Uh, certain Iranian, weaning them from Iran will be somewhat well, difficult. Um, how should we be dealing with Russia in this? And then let's get to how Trump is you okay. know, making well, that Well, just to say about Syria, I think Assad is going to stay for the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. I don't like it, but that's, that's a fact. Uh, it's really funny, uh, funny, tragic funny, uh, ironic. But for 10 or 15 years in our business, one of the big cottage industries was humanitarian intervention, the concept of responsibility to protect R2P. So where we ha here we have the greatest humanitarian crisis since Rwanda. There are interventions, but no one would call the Russian and Iranian interventions humanitarian. Correct. Just the opposite. So you ha just to sort of show how things uh, evolve. Mm -hmm. But I think Assad is here for the foreseeable future. Uh, and that's a, uh, Russia ought to be more of a partner against ISIS than it is, but so far at least it has not been. The Russians have not made a priority about going after ISIS. They were going after people more that we were supporting who were anti-regime. Um, anti, anti uh, in terms of the future, I would say with Russia, we ought to have, I think we need two, dial, two tweaks on the dial, if you will. One is on the toughness dial. I think we have to get a bit tougher. And I would say we ought to be doing more to strengthen uh, NATO Europe. Anytime you have a gap, a large gap between what you're committed to and what you're capable of, you're asking for trouble. We now have that in NATO. We have got, we basically demilitarized big chunks of NATO after the end of the Cold War. Mm. We've got to remilitarize that. Some of it was begun under Ash Carter. We've got to, I think, continue that. One of the interesting questions for the current administration will be, will they do that, particularly in the Baltics and elsewhere? I do think we need to do more for Ukraine. The Russians are turning up the temperature in Ukraine. Yeah, well, I'm sorry, stop on this administration. What is the deep, deep, what do they feel about protecting the Baltics and Ukraine? Uh, look, I don't think you can speak about this administration yet in the national security sense. We got the national security advisor is less than 24 hours old, and the secretary of state and the secretary of defense don't have one staffer. They're home alone. This is the Macaulay Culkin no of, uh, <laughs> of, of administrations. Everybody's home alone. There's um, so we don't have an interagency. We don't have an interagency yet. So I don't think we can yet speak. We may have different instincts or proclivities, but I would be shocked if there were a systematic review interagency of what we would do. 
about how to deal with what Russia is doing in, in eastern Ukraine, or if Russia were to do the same in Lithuania tomorrow. So I just, I, so the answer is I don't know. Uh, but I, well, my, my, my answer is that we ought to be prepared, and I, even, and I would say, if not today, then tomorrow, uh, we ought to be putting more capabilities into NATO Europe, give Ukraine more abilities to uh, defend itself. That's the toughness dial. And then I would also say there ought to be some outreach dial to the Russians, whether it's an envoy, but also we ought to make clear to Putin that regime change in Moscow is not what we're about. Uh, not, you know, I think he, I, I actually believe he takes that more seriously than, than we might think. But you that, think he was involved in regime change here? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, don't believe, I, I, I don't speak Russian, but I doubt there's a great word for freelancing mm-hmm. in, uh, Putin's, <laughs> in Putin's Russia. Of yeah. course they were involved in it. And now, what I don't know is what, if any, effect it may have had. But, uh, but of course, and, I, and, I, I, and they're obviously doing it in places like Germany and, and France. So, uh, but I would, yeah, I would think about sending reassurance there. I don't think countries like Ukraine or uh, Georgia ought to be NATO candidates anytime um, soon. And I think we ought to talk to them about sanctions, but say we're prepared to relieve them or reduce them, but only if under the following situations. Make, very, very, make it very clear what the conditionality is. I don't think we ought to do any of it as a down payment, but I think we ought to be prepared to do it, in part, to, rele- to reduce some of the sanctions. If Russia were to start doing X or stop doing Y, I would have that kind of a conversation with them. Richard Haas was the senior Middle East advisor to President George H.W. Bush and the director of the policy planning staff under Secretary of State Colin Powell. He now leads the Council on Foreign Relations. He's speaking with Walter Isaacson. Isaacson is president and CEO of the Aspen Institute. In your book, you talk about something Graham Allison has a book coming out on, which is sort of the Thucydides trap, which is when a dominant power like the U.S. faces a rising power like China. Yeah, I mean, that's the idea. There's a certain inevitability because more often than not, that happens. Uh, I don't believe it's, uh, it's certainly not inevitable between the United States more and China. More often than not, a conflict happens, yeah. like Thucydides said. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I don't believe it's inevitable, China. It's certainly not desirable. I actually think it's a challenge for diplomacy and statecraft. And I actually think there's a decent chance of avoiding it because China, unlike Russia, is so integrated economically. And I don't think China gets, I don't think Xi Jinping gets up in the morning looking for confrontation with the United States. He's got his, his party Congress this October. He wants to consolidate political power. He's got to deal with a slowing economy. I, 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 he's got a, a, a growing middle class. I actually think China wants integration. Now, they might want to make some changes in the international order. Fine. And, I, I, and as I say in the book, we ought to have a conversation with them about what World Order 2.0 uh, looks like. But I think China and that is fundamentally different than Russia. I think Russia is much more of a spoiler, is not particularly integrated. I thought, you know, Lavrov came out of the closet the other day saying that it's time for a, a post-West international, well, I, I think Russians believe that. But I think China in that sense is very different. The good news is China is also more important. It's 10 times the population. It's a true global economy and so forth. So I think chi- I think the 21st century is much more about China than Russia. But we went up, but we shouldn't underestimate the potential of Russia in Europe or in the Middle East uh, to be consequential. I don't even know how to phrase this question, but you've been so unnerved by the behavior of the Trump administration. What do you think they have to do to right themselves? 
let's come back to basics. Yeah, the Trump administration took office with, with I think, about as tough of an inbox as you get, which again, which is why I wrote this book. I didn't know who I was writing it for, but I thought that whoever was going to be the 45th president was going to inherit uh, a tough, tough situation, a daunting inbox, and it's true. Of whether it's what we're talking about in Europe or an unraveling Middle East, North Korea, rising China, India-Pakistan issues, and all these global issues where from cyber to health to terror that we, there's a gap between where the challenge is and um, where we are. Climate change would be on that list. So uh, I thought uh, it was going to be tough. What the administration has done is, is exacerbated it. It's made it tougher. It's basically taken this crowded inbox and most days gets up and says, well, I think we'll add this one today. And we'll add, now a lot of those that subsequently walk back, one China policy, uh, moving the US embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to, to Jerusalem. Not all of them it's walked back. It killed TPP, which I think is strategically even more consequential than uh, economically. It's raised real questions with uh, Mexico. We don't know what they're going to do on climate change. But I think more broadly what they've done is raise questions as to American reliability. And what I think is un unfortunate about that is so many people around the world, so many countries around the world do rely on us. And they get up in the morning and their security is essentially to some significant degree handed over to us. And I worry about if they start pulling that back, say like the Saudis did in Yemen, then I think we end up with a world where others basically take matters much more into their own hands. U.S. influence goes down. And in many cases, they're going to start arming up to do this. So I think it actually feeds proliferation. I and mean, one of the great, I mean, Donald Trump is very critical of alliances often, but one of the great benefits of alliances is they've been a great discourager of proliferation. Countries knowing that they could depend on us as a nuclear umbrella didn't have to go ahead and develop their own nuclear programs. They come to doubt us, guess what? We're going to set in motion debates that will look to uh, new capabilities. Again, the, the bias of the administration at times is disrupt. And I think the bias of the United States needs to be preserved. That's simply a very different way. What I think then you need is a decision-making system that is up to this daunting inbox. I mean, you say that consistency is one of the most important traits of a foreign policy. But then you call Trump a disruptor. Are there ways to reconcile that? No. And so either it will be a very difficult four years uh, in which the degree of disarray in the world will grow, uh, or there'll have to be some change. And the question is whether you've now got a strong Secretary of Defense and State. They need to be staffed up. You've got a new National Security Advisor who I believe has great intellectual integrity and independence. Whether they can make this uh, process uh, work disciplined and figure out a way how they're going to deal with all these other people at the White House, which I think is a complicating factor, to say the least, uh, and deal with a bias of a president, which is disruption. If you look at the inaugural address, I mean, it's important to read that speech. That tells you where their, their instincts are. And I think in many cases they're, they're inconsistent with what it is we should be doing in the world. So whether they will ultimately be there or walking back, mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't know. But, but you know... You know, the old line of Mario Cuomo's, and I'll stop with this, that you, you campaign in poetry and you govern in prose. I hope that's the case. What I'm, I don't want to have us govern in poetry. That would, be a, mm -hmm. that would be a dangerous situation. And it's only a month in, which is another way of saying we have, what, 47 months to go? Uh, pace yourselves, people. 
and, and all administrations change. All administrations learn. The first, no administration is the same after its first real crisis. There's always changes in procedure and outlook and all that. The good news is this administration hasn't had a crisis yet. It's had problems that were largely self-generated, but it hasn't had a genuine international uh, crisis. But it will come. And then we'll see you know, whether it's ready for it. To some extent, it won't be, because no one is. And then we'll see what, what changes uh, yeah. in procedure. My prediction is the first crisis, instead of being something huge like South China Sea, is Mexico is going to spiral more to its left-wing populism, more into the arms of China in terms of other places, and is not going to pay to build a wall and is going to, I think, 80% of exports in the United States in some areas go to Mexico and vice versa. And once you disrupt that, it's going to be really bad for American uh, farmers, consumers, and producers. Well, yeah, I mean, the Wall Street Journal, not known for its left-leaning views, said the Achilles heel of Donald Trump's economic growth agenda is his trade policy. And that's dead right. Uh, and the other day, like when Justin Trudeau was here, was, uh, or he was called Joe Trudeau, this was the, uh, you know, Canada was the good neighbor, Mexico is the bad neighbor. But that, you know, I, I think we've already paid a price for TPP. And we could pay a large price with, with Mexico. And as you say, I mean, the, the polls in Mexico are fascinating. But we could like, at the rate we're going, we're going to help elect Lopez Obrador, the next leader of Mexico. What's so ironic about this is if that were to ever to happen, he would take steps that economically, I think, would be very bad for the country. If the economy of Mexico deteriorates, guess what happens? Young Mexican men decide they have to leave Mexico and come to the United States. Mm -hmm. So the trade policy of this administration could be diametrically opposed to its own views on immigration. But we could be heading in that direction. Not the economic growth of Mexico over the past eight years means that the net migration from Mexico to the United States is what? Well, over the last five years, it's been more leaving the United States. Yeah, than less than zero. Less than zero. So, uh, yeah. So we're basically fixing, quote unquote, a problem that doesn't exist. And in the process of it, we will recreate that problem. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. If you like today's show, check out The Obama Legacy. The episode features Richard Haas, Susan Page, Michael Eric Dyson, and others. How will the future see President Obama's legacy? And what kind of situation did he leave behind for his predecessor? Find it by searching Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes. Now back to today's talk. Here's a question from a member of the audience. You elaborated on uh, globalization, uh, technology, and immigration. Uh, I'd like to add a fourth there, and I think it's uh, poor governance. We've always had it, but I think the technology and the media have exacerbated that. And I think all of that equates to income inequality. And I think you'd find the world to be a lot safer and a lot more pleasant if people had good jobs, a future that they could uh, depend on for their kids and themselves. And unless we have good governance, we're not going to get that. Well, look, I agree. I mean, if you look at what we do in our foreign aid programs in recent years, under George W. Bush, you you introduced the Millennium Challenge uh, Corporation. And what at the core of the idea was that economic development required good governance. And it, it, it integrated the political governing side with the economic side. And I think that's true overseas. I think it's true at home. And American political dysfunction 
uh, our inability, for example, to do things on, um, on infrastructure for all these years, our unwillingness to tackle entitlements and the debt, corporate tax reform. Now, some of this may be changed. I actually think in the next year or two in the markets, I think, are pricing it in. We'll likely see some degree of deregulation, some degree of corporate tax reform. Uh, we're not going to see anything, I think, with uh, the debt or uh, in, in, in entitlements, but we'll probably something with infrastructure. We'll see a degree of uh, pickup, modest in um, economic uh, growth. The only thing I take objection to, inequality is the result of the problem. It's not the cause of the problem here at home. What we need to do is restore upward mobility as a reality. And that is the challenge. And again, I think the answers there are much more in the realm of education, training, transitional economic assistance, and so forth. That's the conversation we need to have. I actually think your institution, mine, and others, there ought to be a big, big, big national conversation. I mean, take driverless vehicles. This is a, this is a slow motion. You know, the hardest thing for democracies to deal with are slow motion crises. One is debt, another is climate change. Our third one is job disappearance. But we can predict pretty safely in a generation that millions of jobs are no longer going to exist because of driverless vehicles. So that means those people in these jobs are going to be out of them, or people who would have gone into those jobs, those jobs won't be there for them. Well, what then? Okay, that's the conversation we need to be having now, and then we've got to re-gear our society so we can deal with it. I just don't see this conversation uh, happening. Uh, Richard Engel, who spent two decades in the Middle East, has an observation that complements your book I'd like to share with you and ask my question. He compares the countries of the region to, the, uh, to a row of old homes. Quote, they looked stable and imposing from outside, but were in fact full of mold and termites, which they both contained and created the way old houses do. In the basements of these crumbling homes lived 30 to 40 million Kurds with rats and roaches, if you will. In your book, you mentioned the Kurds twice, before the Islamic State and after the Islamic State. In the, before the Islamic State, you're somewhat miffed that the Kurds don't submit to the Iraqi identity of Iraq, but you don't pass the same judgment on Latvians for resisting the Soviet identity of the Soviet Union. I don't yeah, agree no, with been, your yeah, interpretation of what I write about the, the Kurds. I think the, the question going forward is we've got a big foreign policy decision to make, which is um, the Kurds, particularly in Syria, have proven to be our best partners. And the question is, how do we square that partnership with uh, what Turkey wants, which is Turkey is an ally, but often not a partner. Uh, the Kurds are partners, but not allies. A different uh, situation. And how we uh, work that out. I would think in Iraq, ultimately, you know, whether the Kurds are highly autonomous within Iraq or one day have a state of their own, we'll see how that plays out. The, uh, I think the Kurds in Syria, at a minimum, need to be uh, autonomous. How geographically you would ever join those two up, I don't know, given the fact that geography doesn't help you. The Kurds in Turkey and the Kurds in Iran are, are different situations. So I don't see, if you will, a larger, greater Kurdistan. Uh, but I think there are possibilities for something, for something smaller. But I think, uh, particularly with the Syrian Kurds and the Iraqi Kurds, the United States ought to remain very close. What I'm just not sure of in my own thinking is what the uh, packaging ought to be. I make clear in the book elsewhere that I don't believe self-determination ought to be one of the principles of what I call World Order 2.0. I think that we're in a world now where too much can affect too, too much, and that every case ought to be looked at separately. 
and we ought to look at what's the basis for having an entity of your own, what would be the implications for stability in the area. And, uh, you know, Bill Sapphire once wrote a, an article about, a column about my views on the use of force when I was advising President Bush the father, and he called it, it the it depends doctrine. And that's where I come out a little bit on self-determination. It's the it depends doctrine, and we've got to look at the specifics in, e in each case. And so there's, it's not an always or never situation. I love being able to turn the phrase double standard to it depends. Uh, since the Permanent Court of Arbitration ruled in favor of the Philippines in its maritime dispute with China, the Philippines has sought closer relations with China Malaysia has opted to buy patrol boats from China instead of us, yeah. and Vietnam has agreed with China to pursue their dispute, to resolve their dispute through negotiations. In light of the lack of concern shown by the countries most directly involved, don't you think our constant harping on Chinese aggression in the South China Sea, including engaging in provocative naval actions, is counterproductive, if not downright embarrassing? In other words, the U.S. is engaging in provocative naval actions, not China. Well, again, we have interests in the South China Sea, and I believe we should continue to uh, act in ways using our ships and our airplanes that underscore our interests. I'm not looking for a crisis there. I just don't want the Chinese to act unilaterally. And uh, if they can work things out legally with some of their neighbors. Well, we have our own, again, it's up for China and its neighbors if they want to work things out uh, in terms of settling their claims. My view is simply that we have our own interests. We have no territorial aspirations there. We do have interests to do, though, with passage and overflight. And we should just continue to, to assert those straight up. Uh, I don't see it as the centerpiece of the U.S.-Chinese relationship. I was frankly surprised when the then Secretary of State nominee singled it out for uh, mention in his uh, statement. Uh, for my, in my view, the centerpiece of the U.S.-China relationship now ought to be North Korea. And we ought to be trying to avoid things like a, a crisis over two-China policy. We ought to avoid a crisis over our trade policy. We ought to avoid a crisis over the South China Sea. Uh, but China is doing things in the South China Sea that should give us heartburn. And the way they're adding military forces and filling out islands is inconsistent, I believe, with the idea that no one should take unilateral steps to change the status quo. And we have interest there as well. So I think we should continue to act on behalf of our interests. In the way back there, sir. Yes. What do you think of Lincoln's expansion of NATO to the door? The question was, what do I think about uh, the expansion of NATO under the Clinton administration, the enlargement of NATO near Russia? I think historians are going to have a field day with this policy. I actually think that this is, you know, when it happened, it was being debated and by various columnists and foreign policy uh, public intellectuals. And I think in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, it will continue to be uh, debated. Uh, I was less of a, uh, an enthusiast for it. And my view was we could have done more with two other alternatives. One was the Partnership for Peace, which included uh, Russia. Russia. And I thought gave us a lot of what we wanted to do substantively without the symbolism of NATO. And then at one point, and I write about it in A World in Disarray, I recommended that we, bring, we offer Russia uh, or consider offering Russia membership in NATO. Because by this point, NATO had ceased to be an or organization that acted in concert against an external threat. Uh, it was mainly a group of countries that would deal, would deci decide whether and if so how to meet some threat out of area. And I said, well, Russia could be a part of that as well as anybody else, because in most situations, half of NATO wouldn't do it. Uh, now that things have deteriorated to where they are, that's no longer a viable idea whether if we had done that, 
Russia would have accepted. I don't know. There's the Marshall Plan precedent where we were offered things and they decided, uh, the Soviet Union decided uh, not to. But my guess is historians will be divided on this. There'll be those who say the United States violated Churchill's dictum in victory magnanimity. And they'll say that we uh, didn't do enough to take Russian sensibilities into account. And there'll be those who, say, who will say we actually did the right thing given Russian political culture. It was inevitable that somebody like Putin would come to the helm and that we had to have a stronger you know, post-Cold War NATO in uh, place. And it'll be one of those debates that will never be, uh, never be resolved. My view, though, if we were going to go ahead and enlarge NATO, I think we could have done other things in the context of U.S.-Soviet and then U.S.-Russian relations to take in some of the sting out of it. And my, 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 my own view is we didn't do enough of that. And yes, sir. The question is back to American reliability and to the Ukraine. So in 1994, there was an agreement, not a treaty, signed between uh, Russia, Britain, and the USA. It was signed by Bill Clinton. It was a very badly worded agreement, but the spirit of the agreement was sure. that if the Ukraine gave up 120 nuclear warheads, then the Brits and the Russians and the Americans would protect the sovereignty of Ukraine. During the partition of Crimea recently by Russia, the Prime Minister of the Ukraine referred to that agreement and asked for assistance from America. So haven't we already shown ourselves to be very unreliable where we have written agreements in the world? Uh, yeah, I think this is the Budapest agreement. Uh, well, again, anytime there's a gap between what you commit to and what you do, you're in trouble in foreign policy. And this is one of those cases. I also think this had the terrible consequence of undermining our non-proliferation policy. If countries like Ukraine give up nuclear weapons and then get invaded, that will hardly be an incentive for other countries to give up their, their nuclear weapons. The fact that Iraq got out of the nuclear weapons business, regime change happened there. The fact that Libya got out of the weapons of mass destruction business, got invaded, there was regime change there. All these taken together are not consistent with uh, what ought to be our, our non-proliferation uh, policy. Look. Uh, so either we ought not to have made those agreements, or if we were going to make them, uh, be more specific about maybe nuclear guarantees we could have provided to Ukraine rather than an all-purpose guarantee. But there's still more we could and should have done. And the Obama administration had any number of meetings about doing more for Ukraine. Uh, essentially, most of the senior members of the administration favored helping Ukraine more in the defensive area with arms and the rest, and the president opposed it. So you know, there are things I believe we could and should have done even if that agreement hadn't existed, but particularly because that agreement existed. Mm -hmm. Yes, ma'am. You've already mentioned and warned us we should pace ourselves. There's you know, a long time that <laughs> yeah. we're going to be it's in only this. only been one month. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and also that we're not very good at recognizing slow-moving, slow-growing crises. Yeah. But there's one that I think is growing very fast, and you haven't yet talked about it, and that's the crooked press. The what? The, the crooked press, the fake news, and how you see that playing out. You mean the accusations that the press yeah, is crooked? Yeah. Well, I actually think this is, this is sort of the last, Maureen Dowd wrote a column the other day about the, un, the unintended consequences of Donald Trump's presidency. And one of them is, I think, the revival of civil society in this country. I wonder what percentage of the people out marching never bothered to vote. Well, so they learned that civics lesson. And I think this is something of a glory. I actually think in the American media, in many cases now, is performing exactly the way it should. I mean, Walter's much more of an expert on this. I'm just a consumer. 
but I see good old-fashioned investigative reporting. I see reporters not being uh, intimidated. And I see, I was very pleased with what Secretary Mattis said the other day about the free press, and I uh, took note of what John McCain said. So I actually think there's quite a lot of pushback. This is, this. so yeah, there'll be attempts to intimidate or discredit or delegitimize certain individuals or institutions in the society. And it's obviously incumbent upon uh, others to stand up uh, for them. But I think the press is accrediting itself. This has been a great discussion. Uh, but in, under the topic of a world disarray, yes, sir. Uh, I think perhaps we should have devoted a bit more attention to populism. You mentioned it once in passing. Um, Walter identified a number of countries sure. um, where it, votes will, will be made, taken in the next uh, 12 months or so. So one can certainly argue that we're now undergoing in this country a wave of populism. Um, but that could have been very different with a slightly different outcome of the election, or I should say, slightly different outcome of the vote in the voting. Well, I'm not so sure. So, so the question is, yeah. um, how important do you see populism as a fairly long, drawn-out process, which could change international relations quite substantially? Yeah. Well, actually, Andrew, we did talk to popul about a bit, uh, quite a bit without necessarily using the word, but I see populism in some ways as the handmaiden of protectionism and isolationism. And I see all of those running around. Uh, it's interesting. The only issue that I can remember that Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton, and Donald Trump agreed on was opposition to TPP. So regardless of who had won, it would have been an uphill struggle to get, this, to get the TPP uh, passed. And I think it, it shows you that now in this country that populism's here to stay. It crosses party lines. You've got elements of it in the Democratic Party, elements in the Republican Party. And you've got this reality, and Nick Eberstadt writes about it in his piece in the current issue of Commentary. Uh, J.D. Vance writes about it in his good book, uh, Hillbilly Elegy. Charles Murray's been writing about it for you. You've got large parts of the American society that are feeling increasing left out of, of the, the workforce and of success more, more uh, broadly. And unless we deal with that, uh, and that gets back to the education and training and transitional economics assistance, all that. This is get, this problem, not only is it not going to go away, it's going to grow given, again, uh, artificial intelligence and robotics and all of those uh, things. So again, I see populism as springing from a lack of mobility, from frustration and all that. So I think we've got to deal with these uh, issues or it will, again, we will have decreased support for American involvement in the world no support for trade agreements, there'll be less tolerance at home, no support for immigration, and all of these will work against the fabric of this uh, economy and, and society. So I take it seriously. I take it uh, uh, seriously here, and I take it really seriously in Europe. And you take it very seriously in this book in terms of nationalism, populism, and the threats to what could be a more ordered world. Thank you for being here. Thank you all. Richard Haas is president of the Council on Foreign Relations. He wrote the book, A World in Disarray, American Foreign Policy and the Crisis of the Old Order. He was speaking with Aspen Institute president and CEO, Walter Isaacson. Their conversation in mid-February was part of a book series at the Aspen Institute. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Follow the Aspen Institute year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Institute. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of our public programs. Thanks for joining me.